0: to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the Book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com.
1: All right, well, last time together we explored what it means to be passionate for God, what it looks like to have a passion for God. And today we're going to look at that yet again. What does it look like to have a passion for God, to be on fire for God? And we're also going to look at what it means to be on fire for another individual. What does it look like to be passionate for another individual? Let's look at God's Word together as we turn to Acts chapter 21, verse by verse through the entire book of Acts. That's where we're going to continue today, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now today I'm going to be providing a lot of talking points for you. If you're a parent or you're a guardian, you're going to have plenty to talk about with your children and your teenagers. I would say this is a PG-13 message today. So I'm going to present the Bible and what it talks about in such a way that you're going to be able to talk about it with integrity with your children and with your teenagers. But I'm going to give you the talking points so that if you're paying attention, this very awkward subject, one of the most awkward subjects that we tend to face, can be a much less awkward subject and you will be able to navigate through a discussion with your child, your children, and your teenagers. If I have your curiosity aroused by this time, there's a hint in the word I just used, then you're paying attention. Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1 When we had parted from them, when Paul left Ephesus, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Look at the detail that's being provided here, leaving it to the left. This is a first-person narrative of a travel documentary, a travel diary here provided by Luke. We landed at Tyre. "'For there the ship was to unload its cargo. "'And having sought out the disciples, "'we stayed there for seven days, "'and through the Spirit they were telling Paul "'not to go to Jerusalem. "'When our days there were ended, "'we departed and went on our journey. "'And they all, with wives and children, "'accompanied us until we were outside the city, "'and kneeling down on the beach we prayed "'and said farewell to one another. "'Then we went on board the ship,' And they returned home. This is the bond that happens through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though Paul and the traveling companions didn't know these people that well, they were bonded together through the power of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel. So there was a deep connection here. Verse seven. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them there for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Philip is the person spoken of in Acts chapter 8 when he goes to Samaria. Okay, Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. To Jerusalem. Again, we see the phrase used here you go up to Jerusalem, and once you're in Jerusalem, when you leave there, you go down to every place else because it's the city of God presented in the Old Testament. It's a way of reverentially speaking about not only the city, but everything that Jerusalem represents a place of refuge, a place where the temple was, and the presence of God to a very large degree that's Jerusalem is the city that God himself had established and that's why all biblical prophecy by the way revolves not around the United States it doesn't spoiler alert right there okay I should have told you before I said that all of biblical prophecy revolves around Jerusalem and what's happening to the nation of Israel. Very important for you to remember. So the next time you look at what's happening in the United States and shake your head and say, look how terrible things are. Well, the rapture must be soon. The return of Jesus might be soon. I want to lovingly nudge you and encourage you to stop being so foolish as to think that God's prophetic eschatological, fancy word for end times, eschatology, Don't be so foolish as to think that God's end times agenda revolves around what's happening in the United States. It doesn't. It doesn't. If you want to see what's next on the prophetic end times time clock, the agenda, you keep your eye on the nation of Israel. So you go up to Jerusalem, you go down once you leave Jerusalem. You see that consistently every single time Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible and someone leaves, they go down from it. Every single time somebody goes to Jerusalem, they go up to it. There's a theology presented there through Judaism, a reverence for God, a reverence for God. So Philip the Evangelist, you remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, in the earlier part of the book of Acts. Well, he had some daughters and there were others there who had the gift of prophecy. Somebody might say today, well, somebody says that they have the gift of prophecy. Listen, any time biblical prophecy, when it's recorded in the word of God, is very different than when somebody is trying to exercise an alleged prophetic gift outside of the Bible. Very important to understand that. Nowadays, outside of the Bible, now, why would we say that this was credible when it's talking about the prophets here in Acts chapter 21? Because it's in the record of Scripture. These people were tested, they were seasoned, they were affirmed as having the gift of prophecy. We don't get all the details as to how they were affirmed, but we get the record of Scripture that they are indeed called prophets They are indeed called that because they were indeed prophets. Now, nowadays, since we are operating outside of the record of Scripture, you and I need to be very, very careful that we don't assume automatically that because somebody says, the Lord told me, that the Lord really told them. It could be that fire sauce that they ingested from Taco Bell the night before. Just because someone says the Lord told me doesn't mean that the Lord necessarily told them. There's a principle in the Bible of confirmation. You don't just get off and follow somebody because they said the Lord said. Remember that our enemy, the devil, masquerades as an angel of light. He makes himself look very attractive, very appealing. He's the master of deception. There are multiple examples in the scripture. In fact, we just looked at one in Acts chapter 20 where Paul was warning the Ephesian elders about savage wolves who would rise up from within the flock. Not from the outside of the church, but from within the church. It's a great strategy of divide and conquer from within. So just because somebody uses the name of the Lord and says God told me to tell you doesn't mean that God necessarily told them to tell you. It's important to understand that we're reading in hindsight in Acts chapter 21, where they would have known that, they knew that they knew that they knew in hindsight, Luke knew that these were prophetic warnings and that these people really were prophets. So it's a very important distinction to make because anybody could stand up today and say, I'm a prophet, I have the gift of prophecy and the Lord told me. You don't know that the Lord told them. And this is one of the reasons why God raises up and establishes in every church elders. This is what we see in First Timothy, in the book of Titus. You see it in Titus chapter 1 that the, the principle, the practice was to appoint elders in every town. Wherever there was a church, elders were to be appointed. It is the responsibility of the elders, also known as the overseers, also known as The bishops, also known as the shepherds, humanly speaking, following the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, the responsibility of oversight of a church is given to the elders. Some might teach and preach. Some might be the tip of the spear. There needs to be a leader among the leaders. Otherwise, when that's not clear, the leaders, instead of completing each other, can compete against each other. And that's very important to understand who is the leader of the leaders. And then that leader of the leaders needs to also practice mutual submission. For example, in elder meetings, when we have elder gatherings, or even apart from that, I know that when I'm making decisions, those decisions are held accountable, first and foremost, to the Lord Jesus. I mean, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But I also have to keep a listening ear and a watchful eye to my other pastors who are here, and to the other elders that I'm serving alongside of, and that if there are two elders, three elders, I begin to especially listen if two elders begin to express a disagreement or a difference over something I might want to do or something we're doing. We need to especially pay attention. That doesn't mean that we don't pay attention when one elder says something. But when you begin to get two or three, brother, you better start to listen. You better start to especially pay attention because if God could speak through the mouth of a jackass, Balaam's donkey, he can certainly speak through the mouth of an elder or two when he has ordained the elders as a team to oversee a church. Can I get an amen for that? Absolutely, absolutely. And so there's a principle of confirmation and there's a principle of leadership today within the church. And the leaders of the church are the elders of that church. They are given the responsibility to shepherd, to oversee, to instruct, to protect the flock. That's why shepherding imagery is used in the context of scripture. That's why we're called pastors, the pastoral imagery that's presented there, okay? And so... The reason why I'm bringing this up is to help all of us understand living in the 21st century is a bit different than living in the first century. And reading the book of Acts when there are prophetic utterances and people who are prophets and prophetesses is fundamentally different in hindsight than the daily ins and outs that you might find in the course of your spiritual journey. So to wrap it up, just because somebody says God told me to tell you, doesn't mean that God told them to tell you. Be careful, and if you're ever in doubt, if you need spiritual oversight in a biblical way, we wanna make sure that this is not misunderstood in the abuse that can be used today. If you want spiritual oversight, you can go visit your pastor, your pastors, elders of the church and ask them, especially, listen, especially when it comes to the sensational, alleged revelations that people might present whether it's a dream, or a vision, or an alleged word of knowledge. You start hearing voices, could be the voice of God, might not be the voice of God. And so when in doubt, check it out. When in doubt, check it out. So here we have some prophets who are involved there. And there's a prophecy given in verse 11. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. Wow. That's commitment to God. That's somebody who had reined in the sin of self-protection. That also prevalent, seems to never go away, desire within us to protect ourselves, often at the expense of being an effective witness for Jesus Christ. You want to know what a passion for God looks like? Paul is expressing it right here. I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and even die For the Lord Jesus. Now, if Paul is willing to go to Jerusalem and be that kind of a passionate, committed witness for Jesus, certainly you can be a passionate witness for Jesus in the workplace, in your neighborhood, and in your family. In fact, our nation needs to see that type of passionate, selfless, Christ centered commitment more than ever en masse. And Paul is a great example of what an individual has as their priorities when they're filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. When you're filled with the Spirit, when you're led by the Holy Spirit, you will have such a burning passion for people to see Jesus Christ that you won't care about your own livelihood and well-being. Remember, you can either be concerned in life about your own protection or you can be concerned in life about the Lord's direction, that he would direct you and lead you every step of the way. If you make it your ambition to have God direct you, Leave the protection up to God. He'll protect you. Wherever God is directing, God is protecting. So it's important for us to understand here what commitment looks like when you're led by and filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul demonstrates it for us so clearly. He is passionate for God. He is passionate for the agenda of God. He is passionate for the lost. He is willing to do whatever it takes to be faithful to God and to lead as many people as possible to saving faith in Jesus. And he is a great role model for us in the 21st century. He's a great role model for you and for me of what it looks like to be passionate for God and passionate for people. In fact, when you are passionate for God, you'll have a passion for people. How do you know whether or not you have a passion for God? Well, look no further than your burden for the lost. How concerned are you for the people that God has put in your path at the workplace, for the people God's put in your path, in your family, and in the neighborhood where God has placed you? You might find yourself saying, God, get me out of my job. I can't stand it here. God, get me away from my neighbor. I can't stand my neighbor. God, thank you that Christmas and Thanksgiving are now distant memories. And I don't have to spend time with family members. One of the great works of the Holy Spirit is to change our thinking. Oftentimes, we're guilty of stinking thinking. You notice that? Change our thinking, stop asking God to get you out of that situation, start thanking God for putting you in that situation where you can express your passion for him, not in a vacuum. You can express your passion for God by demonstrating a passion for the lost. Listen, lost people are in the dark. Lost people say distasteful things. They do dastardly things. You did such things, you said such things. I know I did before I came to know Jesus as my savior. And so God doesn't have any other choice. In order to send you as salt and light into a distasteful, dark place, he's got to send you into a distasteful, dark place. So your workplace might be distasteful, might be dark. People might say things that are terrible. They might do things that are terrible. They might make innuendos. Well, glory to God, that's why you're there. You're there to be the witness that would otherwise not be there. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're passionate for God, you'll be passionate for the people that God has placed in your path. You'll be concerned about those people. You'll have a burden for the lost. And you'll actually stop asking God to deliver you from those circumstances and begin to ask God to direct you in the midst of those circumstances. And so Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? I love you, I know you love me, I know you're concerned for me, I'm concerned for you. Why are you breaking my heart? I'm willing to even go to death because of Jesus Christ and because of my burden and my passion for the lost. What a great example he is of what it means to have a passion for God. You can always measure your passion for God by your burden for the lost. Verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, this is a man of conviction and focus, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up To Jerusalem. See, I didn't lie to you, did I? They went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason. There's a great name for you if you're expecting. M-N-A-S-O-N of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. It's a means of accountability and a means of relationship and fellowship. The mighty super apostle Paul is going to meet with the elders, the leaders of the Jerusalem church. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, which some of which we have the privilege of reading in the book of Acts that we've been exploring together, this firsthand eyewitness account. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, they're all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So seems like Paul steps into a hornet's nest. People have been spreading incorrect information. They've been gossiping and slandering about him. So the leaders of the church in Jerusalem where the temple is right there, the epicenter of Judaism, why wouldn't they be concerned about the law? and the customs of the Jews. Remember, Christianity is a sect, comes out of Judaism. So you have Jewish adherents to the Old Testament who accept Jesus as their Messiah, and now Paul adds this other flavoring into the mix of preaching and presenting the gospel to non-Jewish believers who didn't know anything about the law in most instances, or in some instances, some of them knew some things about the law, but they didn't practice the law. And so they have this powwow, and they're concerned. They've been told about you, verse 21, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. So what they're trying to to Continue to have unity by the preaching of the gospel where you have Jewish believers practicing the customs of the Old Testament, circumcision, and then you have non-Jewish believers. How are they going to get together in fellowship? So they present this idea, the vow. It's a A Jewish practice, most likely a Nazarite vow. There's some debate and discussion about this. We talked about the Nazarite vows before. And if you're new to our church, if you're new to listening in this series, listening by radio or by podcast, then there you go. You should have listened earlier. Don't miss anything from this point on. How about that? A little bit of a nudge, a little bit of encouragement for you. Go back and listen to the messages and you'll understand more about the Nazarite vow. What then is to be done, verse 22? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Part of the Nazarite vow. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. They'll know what we know is to be true. You're not telling people to forsake the Old Testament. You're not telling Jews that they need to forsake certain practices. You're helping people understand that Jew and Gentile have commonality in Jesus. And we don't ask Gentiles to participate in the Old Testament, but at the same time, we don't want to alienate the Jews. So they'll know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter back to Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. You can look at that. In Acts chapter 15, if you'd like to, the letter that's being referenced, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, Pornea. okay? Porneia is a modern word that we get from the root of what is used here abstain from sexual immorality. And we're going to dive into that in just a moment briefly. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to be missionaries, trying to get people of different ethnic backgrounds of different cultural practices to focus on the person and works of Jesus. And they wanted to make sure, just as we looked at before, they wanted to make sure that Paul's witness and his effectiveness toward the Jews would not be hindered if he was now withdrawing from the customs and the practices of the Jewish people. So Paul's acting as a good missionary, wanting to make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is salvation and the forgiveness of sins for Jew or Gentile, Gentile and Jew, through the person and the works of the Jewish and the Gentile Savior, there's only one, Jesus. And so that's what's taking place here. They're being culturally sensitive to the Jewish people since Paul has come from preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. That's what's taking place here. Now notice again what is reiterated. This idea is presented here in verse 25. And for the remainder of our time, we're going to focus on this because it has relevance for you and for me today. This idea of understanding what is sexual morality. We hear a lot about sexual immorality, but I want to talk a little bit about sexual morality, what it is. Look at verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who believe, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now these are things that any Jew would have been adhering to anyway. But for the Gentiles who weren't familiar with the law, they needed to be taught these basic things, the principles about which the law points. And so there would be commonality between the Gentiles and the Jews based on these things that are presented right here in verse 25. Now look with me at Leviticus The book of Leviticus in chapter 17, Leviticus 17, beginning in verse 10. Why this emphasis on blood? And we're going to look at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, which again talks about blood. Why this discussion among the Gentiles about blood? Because the Jews would have already been very well familiar with this. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you for on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. Remember, atonement means at-one-ment, to be made at one with God through the sacrifice of of an animal in the Old Testament days through faith in God's work through the symbolism of the animal and then now in New Testament times through the work of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice through the shedding of his blood. To make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement or atonement by the life. This is the exchange of life principle. Life for life. The shedding of blood for the blood of another. So it's being presented here one of the key teachings, key principle in the Old Testament and the New Testament through Jesus. Verse 12, therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood Its blood is its life. The exchange of life principle right there. Can't miss it. Leviticus chapter 17 helps us answer the question, which we're going to see again even more so now in Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament. Helps us understand why did Jesus need to shed his blood. Turn with me now to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews in chapter 9 beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves that we just read about and was alluded to in Leviticus and elsewhere in Leviticus, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, a buyback, the purchasing of you for God. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, speaking of the red heifer, sanctifiers set apart for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator, the go-between, the one who is the go-between between the Father and you. He's the bridge, he's the gate. That's what a mediator is, the one who pleads the case on behalf of somebody who's needy before a judge and that's what Jesus did for you, and that's what he will do for you the moment you give your life to Christ as your mediator, as your sacrifice, having shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, forgiveness of your sins, and a right relationship with God. Since a death has occurred that redeems them, or purchases them back from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, all right? Now look with me in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. See, the blood of the animal was a symbolism of the exchange of life principle and a looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate blood that was shed, the blood of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist when he sees Jesus in front of everybody? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing toward, looking toward the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Why was there shedding of blood in the Old Testament sacrifices? Because that was a looking forward to, a type, a kind of the ultimate sacrifice who would be Jesus. He was the God-man, the uniquely brought forth, one of a kind, son of God. Couldn't just be a human being, had to be a God-man, fully human, And fully God, because there had to be that absence of sin, the purity, in order for the sacrifice of Jesus to be satisfactory for God. And that's why it's a once and for all, one of a kind, one and done, sacrifice through Jesus. Make sense? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. A reference to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Indeed. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be, pur- to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our through his sacrifice, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in the Old Testament, what we see is this principle, this substitute sacrifice of one life for another, the exchange of life for another. And what's being presented here in Acts chapter 21 is the same thing that we saw earlier in Acts chapter 15. The Gentiles needed to get educated. They needed to have a crash course in the theology of the Jewish people. And so they're told, Abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Don't get involved in idol worship. No Jew who was devout and walking with their God would be involved in idolatry. And don't eat the food of an animal that was strangled because then the blood would not have drained out of the body. Then you would have been guilty of eating the blood of that animal. And then you would have violated the main teaching of the Old Testament, which is a exchange of life principle that the blood of the animal, looking forward to the blood of the Messiah that would be shed, was poured out in exchange instead of your blood and my blood being poured out. So it's important that that type, that kind, that teaching was not violated even among the Gentiles. And then there's this whole thing about porneia, sexual immorality. Sexual morality, sexual morality is... Sexual activity, sexual conduct between two consenting individuals, a man and a woman, in the context of a marriage. That is sexual morality. And you might say to yourself, you're a hater. You might say, Pastor Mike, sound like a hater to me. Well, all I'm doing is simply helping you understand how the Bible and how God himself, through the Bible, defines sexual morality. There is not one instance anywhere in the Bible where sexual activity between two individuals is permitted and blessed by God unless it takes place in the confines of a marriage which is defined in the Bible as a commitment between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's marriage, biblically defined, And therefore, sexual morality is two consenting individuals in the covenant of marriage who can engage in sexual activity with each other, one man and one woman. That is sexual morality. So what is sexual immorality? Anything else. Anything and everything outside of those confines is called sexual immorality. And it's important for us to understand that God's not changing his standard for the Gentiles. This is the standard that was set up and established very clearly throughout the Old Testament for the Jewish people. And so what's carried over for the Gentiles? That same teaching, that God cares about sexual morality. It's important, sexual morality. Now, it's also important for us to understand as we start to explore just a little bit in our remaining time, sexual Immorality, sexual immorality. See, the door for sexual immorality is opened. Listen very carefully. Watch this. You need to really let this sink deep down. The door to sexual immorality is opened when someone is either unable or unwilling to engage in sexual activity in the confines of marriage. Sexual immorality, the door to sexual immorality is opened whenever somebody is either unable or unwilling to express themselves sexually within the confines of marriage in a sexually moral way. Now let's unpack that a little bit, okay? Let's unpack that so that you understand from God's word and you don't just take my word for it, all right? Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That was a saying of the Greeks and the Corinthians, but not all things are helpful, Paul added to that. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be Enslaved by anything. You know, sexual immorality is one of the surest ways to enslave yourself, to be involved in idolatry, and to invite demonic activity into your life, and to live a defeated life. You'll never feel more dirty and actually convicted than when you're engaged, if you've engaged in sexual immorality. And I have nothing to hide. I've been guilty of sexual immorality in my past. I have. And so I'm speaking to you not from theory, I'm speaking to you from experience. And many of you, if you're honest to God, honest with yourselves, you could say, yep, I can identify with that. And if somebody is engaged in sexual immorality and does not feel, sense, see, understand the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, that's a red flag in terms of your spiritual journey. If you're engaged in or have been engaged in sexual immorality as we've just laid it out and defined it, and you don't sense the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, and you don't see that as wrong, and you don't understand that as being a sin before God, there's a big question about whether or not, listen, whether or not you even accepted Christ as your Savior in the first place. Because you can't accept Jesus as your Savior and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and engage in something as fundamentally askew, fundamentally sinful as sexual immorality, and not grieve the spirit of Jesus. Listen, if you grieve Jesus, he's going to let you know. That's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He tells you specifically. Now, you can try to redefine sexual immorality, but then you're tampering with the word of God, and then you're going to have God to deal with. That's a very dangerous thing. So here, First Corinthians chapter 6 verses 13 as we continue, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Some people would look at this and say, well, see, sexual immorality is only engaging in sex with a prostitute. No, that's one of the examples of sexual immorality because the Corinthians had this idea where they could get a heightened experience, so they thought, The Gentiles, the non-Christians, at least if they had come to know Christ, they were getting a wake-up call here. They could go into a idolatrous shrine, pay a price, engage in some type of activity with a shrine prostitute as a means of trying to connect with the gods. And what Paul is saying is that that is sexual immorality. It's not one man and one woman in the confines of the commitment of marriage, and therefore that makes it immoral. If you engage in sexual activity with a married individual and you're not married to that individual, sexual immorality. You might say, God told me, I think this, that's true love. No, it's not true love, it's true sin. It's true immorality. It's true immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's presented in the Bible about the consummation of a marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now in one sense, all sin is the same, The sin of gossip is just as significant as the sin of sexual immorality. And Jesus would have had to die for that. Jesus did die for that. But in another sense, sexual immorality is different in terms of the nature of the sin. Why? Because it says right here, he who sins sexually sins against his own or her own body. It's intrinsic to who you are in a way that's different than other sins. Sexual sin is Different in that regard. It's not different in that it's more significant than the sin of gossip, for example. I'm just picking one sin out. Or the sin of gluttony or the sin of slander or the sin of stealing. They're all significant. Jesus died for all of that. But there's something intrinsically different about what you're doing to yourself and what you're doing to that other person when you sin with sexual immorality. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Boy, I wish we had more time to talk about the temple of the Holy Spirit in contrast to the temples that the Corinthians were participating in. But y'all come back now, you hear we'll talk about that at some other time. But sexual immorality, let's continue here. Because I want you to understand that the door is open to sexual immorality whenever somebody is unable to express themselves through marriage and sexual conduct through marriage, or whenever somebody is unwilling to restrict themselves under the blessing of God to sexual activity in the confines of marriage. Verse 1... 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Now, concerning the matters about what you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or not to get married. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So we have this teaching from scripture that one of the things, one of the fringe benefits of getting married to a member of the opposite sex in the confines of marriage is so that you don't get tempted into sexual immorality outside the confines of marriage that God ordained. So each man should have his own woman, monogamous relationship. And if you don't think that polygamy is going to become a problem in the United States, you remember what I'm saying right now. We're going to have some challenges in this nation with the discussion beginning about redefining marriage yet again, where polygamy is then considered to be, okay, well, if everybody is consenting, we're all consenting adults, why can't we? You watch, it's going to happen sooner than we think. You watch. Because as a culture marches away from the teachings of God's word, it begins to open the door to whatever it wants to teach as a substitute, whatever it wants to embrace. So each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. I don't like the word that's used there in the ESV because it sounds so (laughs) like we're watching an episode of Law and Order here. (laughs) What it means is the husband should express himself and fulfill the desires of the wife within the confines of that marriage. And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority. Here's the motivation for you who are married. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. How's that for mutual submission? Right there, taught in clear black and white in scripture. Men, you're not in charge of your own body. You don't get to say no to your wife. When your wife wants to get busy, get busy. Amen. Ladies, conversely, when your husband wants to get busy, get busy. Show him how it's done. You have God's blessing to do that. He gave you your husband. Just look at how awesome he is. That's all pause right now. Take a look at how hot your husband is. Ladies, Yeah, it's okay to get excited. You like that? I know, Sandy, you're excited about your man. That's okay. You know, it's a good thing to have a wife. It's a good thing to have a husband and to express yourself sexually and to be blessed by God because God made marriage. God blessed marriage. And you know what? Having kids is not just something that we go through as some type of a dutiful exercise. If you haven't noticed it kind of has some personal satisfaction involved. Bringing children into the world actually feels good in some way. Now, come on, I'm not gonna go into more detail than that. Control The whole idea, the whole context of what Paul is presenting here in the first century, it's so true to us today in the 21st century, where we can be sexually immoral, not necessarily in real time with a real person through tactile being able to touch them, but we can now be sexually immoral through a smartphone and do some pretty stupid things, or through a computer or through a tablet, do some pretty stupid things. Remember, sexual morality Is two consenting adults, one man and one woman, in the commitment of marriage expressing themselves. That's sexual morality. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. Now, here's what we need to understand from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we begin to wrap it up and you get ready to have some serious discussions with your spouse and some serious discussions with your children as a result of the talking points that I just lobbed to you as this massive softball, okay? The spouse, if you are married, you have a tremendous say In the degree to which your spouse will be tempted sexually, you have a tremendous say in the degree to which your spouse will be tempted sexually by whether or not you withhold sexual intimacy which God has ordained in the confines of marriage to you. Ignore your spouse and they just might go away. If God has put you with one man and you're a woman and you're married, get busy. You're anointed and appointed to be sexually active with your spouse and not have any kind of sexual activity outside that, all right? We need to understand that each of us, if we're married or if you're going to be married, you will have a tremendous impact on the degree to which your spouse is tempted towards sexual immorality for no other reason than whether or not you take seriously what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Your spouse has authority over you in regard to your sexual activity. There's a season in which you can refrain, you can fast from sexual activity to pray and to dedicate yourselves, but then you come back together so that the devil doesn't tempt you. There's a whole lot of sexual immorality in the world today and you need to understand that if you're married or if you're going to be married, you have fringe benefits in the confines of that marriage where you can get busy. Hey, listen, I'm going to say this. You can get busy for God with his full blessing. He made marriage. He made sex. He made procreation. He designed it. He said, it is good. It is very Good. Outside of that, it is bad. It is very bad. And I'll end with this thought for you. Just because your spouse has tremendous impact over you in whether or not you are tempted to be sexually immoral doesn't absolve you from being moral. It doesn't absolve anybody. Nobody has an excuse to say, see, hon, you're not giving me what I need. You're not giving me my conjugal rights. It's right here. Pastor Mike talked about it. Listen, don't bring me into the bedroom, okay? (laughs) Don't bring me into that. The Bible makes it very clear. Listen, the whole idea here is that just because your spouse might be withholding from you what you have a right to get from them in the confines of marriage doesn't mean that you can drop back and punt on your commitment to Jesus because you're not just committed to your spouse in that marriage. You're first and foremost committed to Jesus as expressed through faithfulness to your spouse. And so you could be tempted to think, well, darn right I'm going to look at that. After all, I'm not getting what I deserve. Darn right I'm going to have a conversation. After all, I'm not getting what I deserve. And you get involved in an emotional affair. Darn right I'm going to drink water from somebody else's cistern because I'm not getting it from mine. Listen, you're you're self-deceived at that point because your commitment is not just to your spouse. Your commitment to your spouse is in proportion to your commitment to your Lord and Savior, Jesus, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. To be set apart to the Lord is to be set apart to your spouse. And hopefully I made it abundantly clear what sexual morality is, what sexual immorality is, and why it was important for Paul and all the apostles to be on the same page, whether you're a Jew or whether you're not a Jew, to have everybody on the same page in regard to holiness and purity and walking with Jesus. So now you've got some talking points with your spouse. I imagine that there might be some children born about nine months from now as a result of this
0: message. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.